Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. As you know, we've been giving a lot of information to people. We want you to know how to be proactive in your health and what steps you can take to be healthy while you're waiting to see your doctor or as, as when you work with your clinician or whatever. So we're here to give you lots of information. So today we're going to learn about vitamin D, and it is so important. It, when I look at it, it seems to be involved in just about every reaction in the body. And, I mean, some people have even done papers thinking it's a very positive contribution to autism. So let me introduce William Grant. He has a Ph.D. in physics from the University of California at Berkeley and a 30-year career in atmosphere science with an emphasis on laser remote sensing of atmospheric constituents such as ozone and aerosols. He also worked for SRI, the Stanford Research Institute, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech, and at NASA, Langley Research Center. But in 1996, he started to focus on health. He's published well over 300 research papers, initially focused on linking diet to Alzheimer's disease, and he's still following that and finding a lot of interesting studies, such as the role of sugar, fat, and coronary artery disease, looking at meat being a high uh, influence in getting Alzheimer's disease. In 1999, he turned his attention to the role of solar ultraviolet B exposure in reducing the risk of cancer through the production of vitamin D. And in 2002, he added eight types of cancer to the five already known to be affected by this. After retirement from NASA in 2004, he, we were lucky enough to have him move to San Francisco, and he formed the nonprofit organization Sunlight Nutrition and Health Research Center. Website is www.sunarc.org. So he's been very busy studying the role of solar, UVB exposure, and vitamin D, and how this, this and these together reduce the risk of many different kinds of diseases. He works closely with several vitamin D advocacy organizations and has over 360 health publications, which you can find on PubMed. To find PubMed, to find various research on various health topics, the website is www.pub. MED.gov. And 260 of these articles are related to vitamin D. So, welcome, Dr. Grant. Uh, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, our pleasure. So, um, as I see it, vitamin D has been ignored for a long time. And I think through your efforts and other people's efforts, we're now beginning to realize the importance of vitamin D. So, can you tell us uh, what some of the benefits of vitamin D are? and what some of the benefits of sunlight are? Okay, if I can back up a little bit and point out that that vitamin D is really a hormone. Uh, It's formed from a type of cholesterol under the skin from UVB exposure. And um, um, uh, eventually the the hormonal version of vitamin D uh, can uh, 
go into the vitamin D receptors, and almost every cell in the body has a vitamin D receptor. And when this hormonal version goes into the, to the receptor, it can affect gene expressions, turning uh, some genes on, turning some genes off. And to underscore the importance of, of vitamin D, uh, I note that um, the skin pigmentation varies worldwide depending on the, the normal ultraviolet radiation doses for the area. So it's a trade-off between protecting the skin from, from free radical damage and skin cancer melanoma and destruction of folate in the serum, as well as allowing enough UVB through to the cholesterol layer to produce vitamin D. So if you look at the, the tropical plains in Africa, people have to have a very, very dark skin. But um, as they, people moved out of Africa to northern Europe, for example, the skin had to become progressively paler so that they could uh, produce the amount of vitamin D required for, for optimal health. Um, so what are the benefits of vitamin D? Well, until, until about uh, the year 2000, uh, we thought that the primary benefit of vitamin D was just uh, in terms of calcium absorption and uh, calcium metabolism, strong bones, prevention of rickets, and, and prevention of osteoporosis. But as people begin to look into, uh, for example, um, the, the Garland brothers uh, looked at the map of, of colon cancer mortality rates in the United States and saw that the mortality rates were much lower in the southwestern states than in the northeastern states. And they had just driven from San Diego to Baltimore and it was very sunny in the south and not so sunny in the, in the, in the um, northeast. And so they um, hypothesized that UVB through production of vitamin D reduced risk of colon cancer. It took them six years to get their paper published, uh, but then that set off um, a little bit more research. And, but um, uh, it, was, it was a difficult concept to, to, to grapple with for, for the medical system and even for me when I first heard about it. But um, when the new maps came out in 19, 1999, showing uh, many types of cancer with the same pattern, um, very low rates in the southwest, very high in the northeast, uh, it became apparent that there was some driving force. And if it wasn't diet, which I quickly realized it wasn't, then it had to be uh, UVB and vitamin D. Uh, so, um, so cancer is one of the very important um, diseases for which um, UVB and vitamin D uh, reduce the risk. Uh, some of the other diseases that have a, a similar ge geographical patterns are food allergies um, and irritable bowel syndrome and Parkinson's disease. But you also recall that, that solar UVB is highest in the summer and, and doses are lowest in the winter. So things like cardiovascular disease and infections have um, rates that are lowest in the uh, summer and uh, highest in winter. And those have been linked to, to, to vitamin D deficiency as well. And then there's all-cause mortality rate, um, a very nice study in Sweden, uh, which was designed to study the um, uh, connection between the incidence of melanoma and the amount of time spent in the sun as a byproduct looked at, at mortality rate as a function of time spent in the sun and found that those who spent the most time in the sun in Sweden had half the mortality rate after the age of 70 
as those who spent very little time in the sun. So it's it's um, it's just a general overview. Wow, that's certainly very exciting because I remember, oh, you're going out in the sun, you've got to put your sunscreen on. Oh, you can't let the sun get to you, you might get melanoma, etc. So what you're saying, except for very, very few, very few diseases, that exposure in the sunlight actually decreases your risk for various cancers, including melanoma? Uh, yes, for melanoma, uh, they find that people who are chronically exposed to, to the sun, such as through occupation, really don't have any increased risk of melanoma compared to the general population. In fact, the Garlands, um, uh, who uh, did a study on uh, Navy men and found that it was the submariners who got more melanoma than the deckhands. Um, because if, if one is exposed to the sun every day, uh, the body has many ways of fighting melanoma, uh, thickening the skin, uh, tanning, uh, producing, uh, producing vitamin D, and vitamin D does fight melanoma. And um, whereas if you go out sunbathing on the beach once a week or once a month and get sunburn, that's where you get the risk factor for, for melanoma. And furthermore, most of the melanoma that's uh, found is found on parts of the body that aren't exposed to the sun on a regular basis, such as when you go uh, uh, to the beach. Wow. I mean, so I know some people are terrified of melanoma, and they're always putting these sunscreens on to protect themselves from the perceived damage. So you're saying that these suns- these sunscreens can actually get in the way from protecting them from melanoma? Um, yeah, there was a study, again, by the Garlands, showing that uh, when they looked at a lot of the papers in, related to sunscreen use, that people who live north of 40 degrees, that'd be the, like the Oregon-California um, uh, border, uh, by wearing sunscreen, actually had an increased risk of melanoma, although it protected people south of that. And I think what's happening is a lot of the sunscreen doesn't protect well against the long-wave UV called UVA. And UVA penetrates deeper into the skin and is a, and a very important risk factor for melanoma. It's the UVB that, and, and the short part of UVA that causes the uh, reddening and the sunburning. But, but it's the long wave that gets down and, and, and does the damage that leads to melanoma. So, uh, so, so sunscreen use is sort of a, well, it should be used if you're just going out, uh, say, on the beach once a week. You might, want to, you might want to spend a little time without sunscreen, then put it on to protect yourself. But to wear it every day, year in, year out, I think that's misguided. Uh, reading your book, which um, is, uh, reading your recent book, it sounds like most diseases will decrease with sun exposure, and there's only a very, very few that uh, uh, that are associated with increased sun exposure. You mentioned like there's 5,125 deaths per year associated with too much sun exposure, and about well over one and a half million deaths per year associated with low sun exposure. You commented right. that the only diseases really associated with an increased sun exposure are just a list of five, uh, salivary cancer, lip cancer, myeloid, leukin, leukemia, lymphocytic leukemia, and cervical cancer. But all the other cancers, skin cancers, squamous, etc., they decrease with sun exposure? No, no. Basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma are, are linked to sun exposure. Oh, okay. uh, but melanoma, melanoma, much less so. But, I mean, there are maybe a million or two million um, basal cell and cell carcinoma cases per year. 
But my way of thinking about it is that um, uh, you drive a car, you have an accident if you scrape the bumper and do the uh, affect the paint job, but you protected the passenger and the engine and so on, uh, you come out ahead. And um, uh, there's a study, for example, in, in, in New York showing that people who, de- um, who developed non-melanoma skin cancer had 20% of the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease as people who did not get uh, skin cancer. So it, it's sort of a mark of being in the sun. I mean, one should be careful and, and one, doesn't, one wants to do what's called sensible sun exposure, try not to get sunburn and, um, and so on. But um, it, it's, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, every time there's a shark attack, you know, there's a big newspaper account about somebody bitten by a shark. But sharks only count for, what, five deaths a year in the United States or less? Yet, yet it's, it's, it's sort of frightening when it happens. Well, I like your analogy of protecting a passenger in a car because I believe you also mentioned that certain cancers are associated with uh, low sun exposure, such as breast cancer, ovarian cancer, endometrial, colon, bladder, brain, esophageal cancers, gallbladder, renal, leukemia, multiple myeloma, oral cancers, pancreatic cancer, that's a scary one, pharyngeal cancer, prostate, thyroid cancer, and lung cancer, all are associated with having too low a sun exposure? Right. And if you look at it, let's see, there's, um, if you look at the statistics, um, the number of people who die from those cancers is much higher. Okay, so um, 5% of all cancer cases are, are related to melanoma, but only 1.5% of all cancer deaths are, are linked to melanoma. And only one in 300 deaths is, uh, overall in the United States is linked to melanoma. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's sort of a red flag, but it, it's, it's, uh, I think it's not, a, it's not a very important one. Wow. So and how yes, great... Yeah. Okay. Yes. We go back to breast, can we go back to breast cancer? So there's yes. a new study on, on breast cancer just published a few months ago uh, showing that... Um, People who got up to a serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D concentration of, of 70 nanograms per milliliter had um, about one-fifth or so the, um, uh, mortality, the, the breast cancer incidence rate of people who had about 15 nanograms per milliliter. Now, these were people taking supplements, uh, but um, uh, it does show that, that, um, that vitamin D does reduce the risk of, of breast cancer. And like you say, colon cancer and quite a few other cancers. Now, you also point out that sunshine is not going to be the answer to curing cancer, but that it helps some of the mechanisms that help cure the cancer. And, you know, other things such as nutrition and environmental factors should be a role as well. So um, that, that it's just one of the mechanisms that helps the other mechanisms work. Is that correct? Well, yeah, there are risk factors and risk-modifying factors. So I would say that, that meat and animal products should be considered uh, important risk factors for many types of cancer. Um, smoking, of course, is an important risk factor. Alcohol consumption is a risk factor. Um, and then vitamin D is a risk reduction factor. So to some extent, you can use vitamin D to fight some of the risk factors. So if you eat a lot of meat and take a lot of vitamin D, you might come out the same as eating a, a vegetable product diet and, and not much vitamin D. 
Uh, you also did a recent study saying when you looked at what are some of the major contributors to people going on the pathway to Alzheimer's disease, and you found meat to be something that's very problematic? Uh, yes. Um, in fact, the first paper finding that was a Seventh-day Adventist study published in 1993. And most uh, Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians who might eat some fish or some eggs. But a few of them ate meat, and they found that the meat-eaters had about two or three times the rate of Alzheimer's disease of the non-meat eaters. And so I did a, a study, a published study, a study in 2016, in which I looked at prevalence of Alzheimer's in 10 or 11 countries and looked at the dietary factors in, in, in those countries and found that total meat supply or total meat plus eggs plus fish um, had the highest correlation with Alzheimer's prevalence, whereas... Um, Things like uh, the grains and, and, and um, rice and wheat and so on had a very low uh, correlation with Alzheimer's disease. And it appears that what happens is that cholesterol appears to be an important risk factor for Alzheimer's, but also the trace minerals like, like uh, uh, well, iron in meat. Uh, aluminum has been known for a long time to be a risk factor. But... Um, the way I got into the study of Alzheimer's disease was I studied the effect of acid rain on forest soils. And when you have acid rain on forest soils, it, it leaches out the base cations, the, the beneficial nutrients like calcium, magnesium, and potassium. But as it, the pH lowers, it dissolves the oxides of aluminum and all the transition metal ions, iron, mercury, zinc, manganese, and so on. And so um, the, the trees, when they go to build their, their, their cells, use whatever's available. If they can't have calcium, they might use manganese, which doesn't fit well. And so after 50 years or so, the tree goes into decline and eventually dies. Well, at University of Kentucky, they studied the brains of people with Alzheimer's and found exactly the same chemistry. And it turns out that eating mainly animal products will increase the concentrations of these transition metal ions uh, like iron and aluminum and reduce the amount of things like calcium, potassium, and magnesium. So I think that's part of the reason that that diet is so important. Um, the, the, uh, also, the vegetables have a lot of antioxidants, whereas meats and, um, and, and eggs don't have antioxidants. So um, what, what's, what's often touted in the literature is that the Mediterranean diet is a way to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's by, by 50%. And in my study, I, I confirmed that, yes, the, the traditional Mediterranean diet from Crete uh, has the components that are associated with half the risk of Alzheimer's as in the United States or Brazil or Mongolia, three countries with the highest um, Alzheimer's disease rates. But there's still twice as much Alzheimer's in, in the Mediterranean country as in the countries that have mainly uh, a rice-based or, or a strictly vegetarian diet. So um, it was interesting when the paper was published and the journal put out a press release, the American and European papers uh, published stories saying, uh, hamburger, here's your, your risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, whereas the Indian newspapers said, aha, our diet reduces the risk of Alzheimer's. Aren't we great? Interesting, the different spends that different countries would have. Now, I assume that you've taken into the confounding factor that people who eat meat heavily might reduce their consumption of vegetables. Was there any way to control for the amount of vegetables they ate or just uh, just uh, non-meat eaters by definition eat more vegetables? 
No, I, I could uh, include all the major um, uh, dietary factors, but it turns out that the amount of vegetable consumption in various countries does not really change very much. It's, um, it's a very small part of the, of the diet. So it's, it's mainly a trade-off between legumes and, or beans and, and, and grains and, and, um, and meat and, and animal products. It's interesting that in the tropics you have uh, mainly vegetable uh, products, whereas the high latitudes, like in Europe, you have a lot, uh, much more heavily into um, meat and, and, and uh, other animal products. Um, and um, so there is a, a large latitudinal variation of, of things like cancer uh, and probably Alzheimer's, uh, which I think is related much more to diet than to UVB and vitamin D. It turns out that because skin pigmentation varies uh, so widely throughout the world that the average vitamin D level uh, is about 20 to 22 nanograms per milliliter uh, in almost every country except, say, the Arab countries where they wear a lot of clothing and don't like to be out of doors in the hot, hot summer. So um, it's, it's um, nature is sort of taking care of trying to make sure people get enough vitamin D. Now, what is the connection between cardiovascular disease and vitamin D and sun exposure? Because I understand that sun exposure can help with vitamin D, can reduce the risk for cardiovascular disease. Okay, one thing sun exposure does is um, releases nitric oxide from nitrogen stores under the skin. And nitric oxide lowers blood pressure and um, uh, it's been shown that, that blood pressure various uh, increases as one goes away from the, the uh, tropics. The, the uh, more important thing is that, that cardiovascular disease rates are much higher in the winter than they are in the summer. Uh, this is true um, not only in the uh, temperate climates, but also in the warm climates like um, Kuwait and Australia. So it appears that it's not just a temperature effect, although it's highly correlated with temperature, but it does appear to be that it's a vitamin D effect. Now, observational studies, there were studies where they look at people's vitamin D level in their blood and then either follow them for a few, uh, in a prospective study for, for some time or just look at their, their vitamin D level when they develop um, a heart attack or a stroke. They find that the, the higher the value of vitamin D, the lower risk of, of all these cardiovascular diseases. Unfortunately, the uh, clinical trials in which they would give somebody vitamin D and then ask, does raising the, the vitamin D level through giving people vitamin D reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease or diabetes or many other diseases? Um, and they, they often find that there's no demonstrated effect. But the problem with these clinical trials is that they're doing the same kind of study you do with a pharmaceutical drug. You're assuming, in those trials, they assume that there's no other source of the, of the drug except in the trial, and that there's a linear dose-response relationship. Well, there's so many sources of vitamin D through diet, uh, through supplements, and through the sun, and, and if you have a, a high amount of vitamin D and given more vitamin D, it doesn't really change your, your, your level. And also, there's a very nonlinear relationship between your vitamin D level, and the health outcome. So even though uh, the clinical trials have not demonstrated that, that vitamin D reduces risk of cardiovascular disease, uh, I mean, there are some 
there's some recent studies that show a little bit of an effect. I still think it's a, a very profound effect, especially because of the seasonal uh, variation. So what you're saying is it's not only vitamin D levels, but the sunlight itself has a, a extra contributing positive factor. I mean, you know, increases in nitric right. oxide. It's more people have fewer diseases during the summer. So vitamin D is important. But on top of that, the sunshine will give uh, you a lot better chance at combating any disease threats. Right. A couple, a couple of other examples. Um, tuberculosis used to be treated uh, by putting people in the sun. Right. And that, that was finally done away with when they developed antibiotics. Uh, but I did a study back in, uh, on the uh, influenza pandemic of 1918-1919. Um, there were data from 12 communities where the public health department of the United States sent teams into these communities and went door-to-door asking people, did anybody develop influenza in your household, and if so, did they die? So it's what's called a case fatality uh, rate study. And it turns out that the, um, the communities where there's more sunlight, more UVB, had lower case fatality rates than the uh, states with the um, lower amount of UVB. And there are two exp- explanations for this. One is that um, um, vitamin, inducing vitamin D then induces uh, a compound called cathelicidin that fights bacterial and viral infections. And the other is that, that um, UVB um, changes the chemical messengers called cytokines uh, from, uh, instead of producing a lot of pro-inflammatory ones that irritate the skin, it produces more of the ant- non-inflammatory cytokines. And so if you had influenza plus the um, irritated lung lining, you're much more likely to get pneumonia. And... Um, so, yeah, and pneumonia is also, uh, influenza is also a risk factor for, for cardiovascular disease. Wow. Well, a couple of points I take away from this, la- this last few, this last part of the conversation is that, um, that vitamin D in the sun reduces the risk, the damage that could be caused by heart attacks, strokes, and blood pressure. And also that sun exposure can protect you against a heart attack even when vitamin D is not produced. Um, I, I, I suppose. Well, mm, maybe. That's okay. That's, <laughs> sure no, that. I, I took it right out of your book. Okay. 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 About the nitric oxide. Okay. Um, okay. So what are the benefits of vitamin D for pregnant women? Ah, pregnant women, they, they are particularly vulnerable to, to uh, problems with low vitamin D. Um, one thing that's recognized is that when women get pregnant, their, their hormonal uh, uh, version of vitamin D, the 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, concentration doubles almost immediately. And remember, that's involved in controlling gene expression. And certainly, fetal development is a time when gene expression is extremely important. Uh, the genes are sort of the, the, the roadmap for development. And um, you've got to have the proper ones turned on and the, the, imp- the, un- the improper ones turned off. So um, uh, Bruce Hollis and Carol Wagner at Medical University of South Carolina have been doing studies of pregnant women for, for, since the, uh, for about 10 years now where they would give them as much as 6,000 international units of vitamin D3 per day. 
uh, for starting about the 12th week of pregnancy. And uh, what they found is that they had to reach 40 nanograms per milliliter or 100 nanomoles per, per liter uh, to, to get to the point where the 125, the hormonal version, uh, plateaued and became more or less constant. Most recently, um, uh, the grassroots, Carol Bagley with Grassroots Health and um, Hollis and, and Wagner did a study in South Carolina involving white, Hispanic, and black uh, pregnant women who were given free vitamin D, uh, I think it was 5,000 IU pills, and told to take these to try to reach 40 uh, nanograms per liter concentration of vitamin D. And then they looked at preterm delivery among, the, among this group. They found that those who achieved greater than 40 nanograms per milliliter had a 60% re- redu- reduced rate of premature birth of those who did not make it, in other words, all the way down to 10 or 15 nanograms per milliliter. Um, so th- uh, since premature birth is also not only very expensive for the hospitals, it also is a, a risk factor for, premature, for early ch- uh, infant death and poor development, et cetera, et cetera. It turns out that most black women have a, a vitamin D concentration around 16 nanograms per milliliter, whereas white women have a concentration around 26, Hispanics around 21 nanograms per milliliter. So black women are, are known to have a much higher rate of premature birth than white women. And the other, um, and so I think that this vitamin D difference is, is what ex- explains the disparity. But there are also many other benefits of, of vitamin D during pregnancy. Another study showed that the, uh, the risk of primary cesarean section was, was way down for higher concentrations. Preeclampsia rates are down and gestational diabetes are down. And for the infant, um, who, um, there's reduced rate of asthma, autism, and rickets, among other things. Wow. So I, I, that one of the key tar- populations to be targeted with, with information about vitamin D are women who are pregnant or trying to get pregnant. Well, I mean, uh, autism is something that's absolutely exploded from one out of 10,000, one out of 2,500, and now they're saying like it's less than one out of 40, so it's really exploded. Uh, do you have any sense for the magnitude of the reduction of autism that vi- vitamin D might uh, help for pregnant women? Like, does it reduce it by oh, percent? Um, don't really know. We know some of the mechanisms. Uh, for example, if a pregnant woman has higher vitamin D levels, she produces more serotonin, and serotonin is a, um, a, a molecule that's very important for executive function, and a deficiency in serotonin is linked to autism. My own okay. feeling is that the risk of autism is, is greatly linked to... to um, the widespread use of, of vaccinations. I think if you look at the mm-hmm. trend yeah. in the number of vaccinations required and the trend in autism rate in the United States, you'll see a, a very strong parallel. And there's a yeah. recent paper, a couple of recent papers, um, but it's hard to fight the, the, the vaccination. Uh, it's in, very in hard to fight. And some people who have fought, uh, like in, in Britain, like Wakefield, I mean, he, they, there was a study... And there were about 12 authors on it, and it just kind of suggested, okay, you know, we notice a lot of these people who had the vaccines, uh, there were some autistic kids. 
And so they, all the authors were forced to retract their statement, and two didn't. And the two that didn't reported to the General Medical Council and lost their licenses. Uh, one appealed, got his license back. So this is a very uh, controversial and almost dangerous uh, area to look into. But I will be interviewing two authors, you know, in the next couple of weeks who have uh, written books on autism and are brave enough to come out of the shadows. Very important, I mean, issue about the vaccines, etc. But it's also a very dangerous topic to talk about. I know of one person who is a very renowned researcher at an extremely prestigious university that just wrote a two-sentence support for somebody that you know, for Robert Kennedy Jr., and that person lost her position, like, very quickly. So uh, there are some extreme views on both sides, and I suspect there's something to this, but it's a very dangerous uh, topic to talk about, but we're going to talk about it in the coming weeks. Right. Yeah, so that is interesting. I mean, my view on autism, it's the final common pathway of everything that can go wrong. And there's many different pathways. Some people have reversed the symptoms with diets, like we had Catherine Reed and Unblind Your Mind. And there's other that reduced the symptoms by taking glutamate out of the diet. Every child is different. So the approach might be different. But guess what? Vitamin D uh, improves just about every pathway you can look at that would contribute to autism. So I think there's something there. Vitamin D is very important. And there have been trials showing that vitamin D does improve the symptoms. It doesn't correct autism, but it does improve the symptoms. Yeah, that's that's, that's what everybody's hoping for. Yeah, so that's hugely important because, yeah, it's, you know, autism, they're the canaries in the coal mine. These are the kids that don't have the immunity or the constitutional strength, and we're all going to be affected. They're just more vulnerable and affected first, so it's a wake-up call to all of us. Um, What are some of the non-vitamin D benefits from sun exposure? Okay, there are quite a few. Um, uh, One is, well, the skin is the the largest and a very important organ in the body, and... um, so one thing that um, sun exposure does is activate the skin's neuroendocrine system uh, through many, many uh, pathways. Another one which I, f- I find interesting is that uh, it re- releases beta endorphins. Uh, these are uh, in- endogenous uh, uh, opioids that go to the brain and make the brain feel happy. And the dermatologists have realized that, that people who, who use indoor tanning beds uh, get these endorphins, and so they have claimed that, that people go to indoor tanning because they become addicted. They like getting these uh, endorphins. Uh, my take on that is that um, nature has provided uh, short-term rewards, such as endorphins, for things we do that have long-term uh, health benefits, whether it's eating, sex, or, or enjoying the sun. So I, I think it's a benefit, not, not a um, not a not a problem. Uh, another thing is that the the blue light from the sun helps uh, regulate the circadian rhythm. I found out uh, the, the hard way by, by going to um, uh, Norway or Sweden on one of my NASA missions in, in February. And we were there for two weeks uh, at 68 degrees north latitude. And I could not, in the two weeks, get on the local uh, uh, time uh, time. Uh, 
zone um, because it just the, the sun was so pale it was very near the horizon, and I just didn't get enough blue light to to reset the um, the circadian rhythm. Uh, the blue light goes in through the um, to a receptor in the eye to the uh, pineal gland where it then can affect um, melatonin and serotonin levels. We've already discussed uh, blood pressure uh, and nitric oxide. Uh, there's also some benefits from infrared radiation, such as um, uh, helping to um, remove wrinkles and help uh, heal wounds. Uh, in fact, some of the people who... Um, Companies that, that have indoor tanning beds now also include infrared lights with it to try to um, give some more health benefits. Um, and finally, with, with sun exposure, one can go out and enjoy the out-of-doors. Wow. When you say blue light, is that the same blue light that we get from our computers that interferes with our ability to make melatonin, which makes it more difficult for us to sleep? Same kind That's of blue right. light? Okay. Uh, yeah, because, yeah, uh, you know, because uh, computers and gadgets, TV emit blue light, which it, uh, lowers uh, t- melatonin temporarily and makes it more difficult to sleep. And apparently one way to deal with this is to use yellow glasses. There's certain companies that make these so that uh, your melatonin production at night's not interfered with. So, okay. Right, right. I have one That makes sense because the sun can the light interfere with melatonin. Melatonin, you know, reacts to that. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, speaking, speaking of melatonin, it turns out that breast cancer is the only cancer I'm aware of that has seasonal variations in incidence. Um, it's most commonly diagnosed in spring and fall, not so much in summer, not so much in winter. And in summer, you can see that vitamin D is reducing the risk of, 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 of breast cancer. The people who wrote this paper on the seasonality said that, well, in winter, it's very likely that melatonin is reducing the risk of breast cancer. And they cite as evidence that blind people have less risk of breast cancer than sighted people. Yes, I have heard that melatonin can be related to breast cancer. I had heard people say that. Now, there's, there seems to be a racial difference, and this is basically due to the different biologies. When you've got dark skin, I guess it's more difficult to make vitamin D. So what, are the, uh, what is the connection between skin color and ability to use vitamin D in sunlight? Okay, so a person with very, very dark skin in the United States would require being in the sun three to five times longer uh, than a white, uh, pale-skinned person to make the same amount of vitamin D. I can also point out that as one ages, the amount of, of this uh, cholesterol in the skin decreases, so older people may require three to four times as much time in the sun to make vitamin D as younger people. Um, and, of course, as, as the skin becomes paler, uh, from very, very dark black to intermediate black, to brown to, to white, the, the efficiency of making... Um, uh, vitamin D uh, changes. Um, Bruce Ames and I are working on a manuscript suggesting that much of the health disparity between uh, dark skin and, 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 and light skin people in the United States is due to um, the amount of vitamin D they can produce from being in the sun. And um, we're going to be suggesting that, um, that the darker skin people be more diligent about taking uh, vitamin D supplements 
to make up for the fact that they can't make much vitamin D uh, from, as, as well from the sun. Okay, that's very important. Uh, what about tanning beds? Uh, I mean, are they recommended or? or um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, would you recommend people go to a tanning bed? I mean, you know, a real health enthusiast might have the initial impression that a tanning bed, oh, that's artificial, that can't be helpful to you. What is your opinion? Well, I, I, I used to get funding and, and used to support the indoor tanning industry in the United States. And I spent about That's eight years going <laughs> That's why I asked, going to indoor, yes. Okay. So I spent about eight years going to indoor tanning beds. And, and um, I didn't develop skin cancer or melanoma. I didn't develop internal cancers. I do have a couple of brown spots on my forehead from that experience. Um, the, unfortunately, in my opinion, the, the, the spectral output of tanning beds is really optimized for tanning and not for, for vitamin D production. So if you go out in the summer, in midday, mid-latitude, you're going to find 3 to 5% of the UV is in the UVB range. But in a tanning bed, it's more likely 2%. Um, it's because it's the UVA that does more of the tanning, and UVB um, does not do so much of the tanning. Um, the, I think that while there are some papers that show that people who use indoor tanning beds are more likely to get melanoma and, and other skin cancers, it's really hard to say whether that's true because people who use indoor tanning also do a lot of outdoor tanning. So it, it's, it's try, difficult to separate out one from the other. Um, certainly when, uh, well, uh, if one has very pale skin, one should not use indoor tanning beds. And if one has... Uh, what's called Celtic skin with red hair and freckles. Uh, one should be very careful in the sun. Uh, turns out that um, they just can't tan. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people in Australia have that type of skin, which is suitable for, for 51 degrees north latitude, but not for uh, 10 and 20 degrees uh, south latitude. So it's interesting that in, in Australia, the vitamin D researchers are very careful about how much they recommend UV exposure and vitamin D because of the fact that people have such pale skin and the concern that they say, well, vitamin D is the, uh, what everybody needs, that people think, oh, I should go spend more time in the sun. So I think one can use indoor tanning uh, carefully, um, and it's probably not that harmful. It's probably, probably more beneficial than harmful, but one just has to be a little careful. So if I were living at an extreme northern latitude or an extreme southern latitude and there wasn't much sunlight in the winter, I mean, if you ever saw the sun, so uh, a moderate uh, exposure in a tanning bed might be beneficial along with taking supplemental vitamin D. Right. Okay. Um, uh, some people are using different... Yeah. Yes. What was that? I have another story from Bruce Ames. Um, he was okay. in Copenhagen uh, one summer, uh, a decade or so ago. He noticed that the city almost shut down, and people were lying down in the parks almost naked. And he asked somebody <laughs> what happened. He says, well, we get sun like this so seldom, and we feel so good after we've been in the sun all day, that when it comes, we go out and we sunbathe. Wow. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Uh, so what about osteoporosis? Uh, 
what's the connection of sunlight with that once we filter out the confounding uh, factors of exercise and walking? Okay. Um, so there's a study uh, reported by, it was a report on a, the uh, battle in, in ancient uh, history um, reported by Herodotus. And he found out that, uh, reported that the um, one group of people, uh, I think it was the Egyptians, yeah, the Egyptians had very thick skulls and the Persians had very thin skulls. It turns out the Egyptians shaved their heads from childhood, whereas the Persians wore a felt uh, skull cap. Uh, and at that time, uh, Egypt had a sun god, Ra. So uh, it turns out that UVB and vitamin D are very important for developing strong bones, um, especially in the first 20, 25 years of life. Um, some of the more recent studies have found that giving people vitamin D and, and calcium late in life, after the age of 60 or 70, doesn't really do much for, for, for bone um, uh, strength and bone mineral density. So it's important for people to get their sun exposure and their, their, their calcium and so on, um, probably through their diet early in life rather than late in life. Okay, and what about mental illness? Uh, I should think being in the sun would be very therapeutic for somebody that's depressed or has some other mental condition. Ah, yes. Um, There's two types of depression. One is called, um, uh, what's it called, major depression? Melancholic, melancholic, atypical. Okay, and there's also seasonal uh, depressive disorder. Yes. So the, the seasonal can be affected perhaps by, uh, by other than by vitamin D, but I think the, the, the heavy uh, depression is affected by, by vitamin D, and that's been shown in, in uh, clinical trials uh, as well as observational studies. Um, of course, it's probably only one of the aspects. Um, I think there are other things that one has to deal with, maybe omega-3 fatty acids and, and so on, but... Um, and then Parkinson's disease, um, they found that their geographical variations, the higher latitudes have more Parkinson's disease than lower latitudes. And then there's multiple sclerosis, which is a neurological disease. Um, that's been known for years that there's very little melanoma in the tropics and, very, and then it increases almost in a linear fashion with latitude. Um, there's some question whether that's a UVB non-vitamin D effect or UVB vitamin D effect. Um, I tend to think it's mainly a vitamin D effect um, in fighting uh, things like Epstein-Barr virus infection, but, but definitely linked to UV exposure. Uh, 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 getting, exposure. getting back to uh, depression, seasonal affective disorder is cured by exposing to light, and it decreases markedly during the summer when there's sunlight. So I certainly expect that seasonal... Uh, depression and affective disorder is related to sunlight and vitamin D. The treatment is to sit in front of a light. And also I think the light is, a, a, is yeah. a bright light, though, I think, and not a UVB light. Probably. And also interesting about depression is uh, William Walsh. He's written a book and looking at things like the overall methylation as seen by the receptor. And if it's really high or low, I forget which, you, uh, you could respond to folate, but respond poorly to the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And if the overall methylation to the receptor is the opposite, 
you will respond more to the uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitor and not do well by folate. So there's a lot of nutritional approaches that, you know, you can listen to that webcast. It was about a year ago. And, uh, you know, have, listen to what he says about it. And the nutri- you know, there are nutritional approaches that can certainly help and in addition to vitamin D. Okay. Uh, okay. What about, you know, some people are treating people with lights, you know, using white lights and blue lights and green lights. Uh, does that have any validity or not because it doesn't include ultraviolet? I'm not an expert on that. Um, I, I do think uh, bright lights help for seasonal affective disorder, but I haven't really studied. Uh, and also there's infrared radiation, which um, is being used in, by some practitioners, and I think that has benefits for the skin. Um, but otherwise, I really haven't studied those. So what about a sauna and the infrared there? I mean, saunas, most experts would agree that saunas are very helpful when we sweat to get out some of the toxins. So how do you see the role of a sauna infrared in helping with this? Um, When I was in Finland uh, a decade ago, I met um, a vitamin D researcher who also had um, a sauna bed and thought very highly of sauna. Uh, I haven't really thought about it, but I think it's beneficial. Okay. Uh, so what are your recommendations regarding vitamin D? Okay. The, the, um, well, first of all, backtrack. The, the Institute of Medicine in 2010 said that people should uh, achieve 20 nanograms per milliliter uh, vitamin D level, taking 600 to 800 IU per day. Well, that was a study more or less sponsored by the drug industry through the FDA and NIH. Um, and it was only meant to deal with bone health. Um, the only clinical trials they had at that time that were strong were on bone health. But now we have so much more information about the non-skeletal effects of vitamin D, uh, showing, for example, from breast cancer that getting up to 60 or 70 nanograms per milliliter is more beneficial than being at 30 or 40. Uh, I also know of a, a physician who um, uh, had his patients, he was in Illinois, he had his patients take 5,000 to 10,000 IU per day, and instead of coming in four times a year, they came in once a year. And after a few years of this, he just had to close his practice because in a small town, he ran out of patients. So uh, we're recommending now at least 40 nanograms per milliliter, if not more. Um, there's really no danger uh, that we can find uh, even above 100 nanograms per milliliter. Uh, there was a famous, uh, well-known, shall we say, uh, vitamin mineral guru who um, had his manufacturer put um, he, what he thought was 1,000 IU per day of vitamin D into his powder uh, that he sold, but instead, because mixed up between milligrams and micrograms, <laughs> um, put in a million IU per day. <laughs> and after a month or two, this guy was not feeling well, he couldn't think straight, his feet were bloody. And finally, Michael Hollick got involved and looked into it and found out what he was taking and what he was. Turns out he'd gone up to 800 nanograms per milliliter. Wow. And then they, they had him um, various ways to reduce his concentrations. And we got down to 400 nanograms per, per milliliter. His hypercalcemia went away, and he was essentially asymptomatic. So um, that's four times this 100 nanograms per milliliter that's told to be possibly toxic. No, it isn't. And I know if there are people who take 10,000, some people take 50,000 IU per day. I wouldn't recommend well, To put it in perspective, if you're in the sun for an hour on a, with your whole body exposed on a sunny day, 
you can make 10,000 or 20,000 IU per day. So the body certainly knows how to deal with that amount and probably more. Um, but I would recommend, well, I take, for example, I take 50,000, I'm sorry, I take 5,000 IU per day, and my uh, concentration is about 72 nanograms per milliliter. And I'm, um, I think I'm in good health. Um, and um, um, the, um, if people want to get, um, find out more, they could go to websites like uh, grassrootshealth.net and vitamindcouncil.org and vitamindwiki.com. Uh, the first two organizations, Grassroots Health and Vitamin D Council, will also sell a blood spot test um, for about $60. You get this, you draw three drops of blood on a piece of paper, send it back, and within a week or 10 days, they will tell you your vitamin D level. And if you want, they will also enroll you in a study uh, at Grassroots Health where every six months you do this, and then they can use the data from that in their studies like the one on breast cancer. So... Wow. Um, Okay, does it matter what kind of supplement you take? Uh, are all vitamin D uh, supplements basically the same, or are there some that we should be cautious with? Okay, there are two types of vitamin D. One's vitamin D3, colocalciferol, which is what we make in our skin. There's also ergocalciferol, vitamin D2, which is made from yeast or mushrooms. D2 is not as effective as D3. It doesn't last in the body as long. Uh, it's not recommended. Uh, when you go to D3, it is a fat-soluble uh, vitamin, but uh, I take a, a powder form, and that gets absorbed just as well as the, 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 the fat-based uh, form. So as long as it's um, um, D3, you're okay. Now, one other thing you might consider doing is taking a bit of magnesium, uh, not magnesium oxide, but magnesium glycinate or magnesium citrate or something, because magnesium helps convert vitamin D to the 25-hydroxy vitamin D. That's what you measure, what's measured for your vitamin D level. It, it, magnesium also has other health benefits, so it's worth taking in any event. Absolutely. Magnesium can help lower your blood pressure, can help with muscle cramps. It's used in so many reactions in the body. It's extremely important. Now, uh, I noticed in the vitamin store that if I buy 1,000 units of vitamin D or 50,000, it's the same price. So can one take a 50,000 tablet once a week since it's fat-soluble? That's what my girlfriend does. Yes, indeed. Uh, the half-life of vitamin D is about two and, two and, a, or two and a half weeks. Uh, unfortunately, there's some uh, clinical trials that give vitamin D dose like 100,000 IU once a month. And so what's happening in those trials is people have their vitamin D level boosted up, and then it falls, boosted and falls. And a lot of those trials do not find a benefit from doing that. Uh, they, they use this 100,000 once a month because they think that people are, will comply better with the, um, the, the trial procedures. Uh, I think they're mistaken, and, um, but certainly taking once a week is, is just fine. Well, we've got three to four minutes left, so I certainly... Uh you know, we would like to have any summarizing points as well as let's talk about your book, Embrace the Sun. Are you dying in the dark? So Embrace the Sun has just come out as a very useful resource. It covers many of these studies and will arm you with information so you can make uh, good decisions for yourself. So any final closing points, takeaways? Well, um, yeah, Embrace the Sun is available through Amazon.com. Uh, Mark Sorensen is the primary author. 
He has an educational doctorate. Uh, he spent many years uh, holding clinics to educate people on the vegan uh, diet to reduce their obesity rates, uh, their cardiovascular disease rates, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. So he knows how to write and, and um, explain things so that the general public can understand them. I came along as more the scientific advisor for the uh, uh, project. Um, interestingly, we both uh, started this work several years ago trying to defend a person who was accused by the Federal Trade Commission of, of selling UVB lamps to produce vitamin D when the FTC said, well, vitamin D hasn't been demonstrated to have any benefits, so why can you sell a lamp that produces vitamin D? Well, we think vitamin D, UVB and vitamin D has many, many effects. Um, the book is 346 pages, uh, 1,224 footnotes. So anybody who wants to know the references we use can find them in the, in the, um, in the, in the book. Um, now, um, so I would urge people to think of the sun as our friend, uh, not, not the demon that, that uh, the dermatologist likes to make us think <laughs> it is. And... Um, and just go out and try to enjoy more life out of doors. Well, that sounds like great advice, folks. So I would recommend that uh, you go get a copy of Embrace the Sun. You can get it on Amazon. It'll give you all sorts of information about vitamin D so you can uh, incorporate it in your wellness program. Um, any other points, like how to get a hold of you or you know, that fair-skinned, freckled people need to be a little more careful. Any final points? Okay, if they want to get a hold of me, they can go to my website, uh, sunarc.org, S-U-N-A-R-C.org, uh, see some of my work, and then they can um, email me. There's an email address there. They can also, also go to pubmed.gov and see the papers I've published, and many of them are, are open access, freely available. If they see a paper they want that's not uh, freely available, email me and I can send them a copy. Um, well, this is great information, folks. So I recommend you get the book, Embrace the Sun, uh, read up on vitamin D, and it's an important part of our armamentarium and staying well. So do your own research. Uh, check with your clinicians, your physicians. Do your own research so you can help others and help yourself. And above all, be well. for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.